0: Oh my god, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fuck, Nicks? What the fuck's the bulls? What the fuckaholics? I am Mark Marin. This is WTF. I'm sort of sweaty. I don't know what's going on, man. I don't know what's going on with my ears. But if anyone can identify with the ears humming and popping, uh, you know, sort of a lot and a bit of sinus pressure, I'd like to identify with you. I'd like you to reach out to me and say, yes, I know what that is. This is what I had. See, I will, I will self-diagnose by consensus. I'm not beyond that. All right, so let's move away let's move out of my sinuses and into the uh, in, into what's at hand which is uh, today I talked to Leonard Malton yeah the Leonard Malton the guy with all the books with the beard the guy with the movies with the rating system the guy that that is the uh, barometer of uh, the short form review. We'll talk movies but more like where, where does he come from Where does the guy you know he's an older guy what what made him man he is a a, a movie lover It was not his. His, uh, his agenda to become Pauline kale or Andrew Sarris. I had a few Cahiers de Cinemas. I had a few of those laying around. My grandma's neighbor was a huge film buff who had just 30 years of film magazines of all kinds. I was sort of fascinated with black and white films when I was very young. I didn't like the movies, but I liked looking at pictures of the actors. I could name most actors in black and white films without having seen the... Uh, the movies and I sort of attach that to my fascination with Hollywood in general which as time goes on erodes and fades my friends yes so Denver Denver holy shit Denver comedy works Denver Colorado I'm back and god damn it you know, I was not feeling great last week mentally. I've been very on edge. I've been very volatile. Uh, the little things are bothering me. I'm quick to explode. I was just wrought with a, a seething sort of discomfort and aggravation and anger. And by the time I got to Denver on Friday, I was like, why am I even doing this? What's going on? You, you know, and I, the last time I was in Denver, it was just a parade of drunkenness. And uh, I remember that a couple of the late shows were tricky. But here's what I forget. Here's what I forget when I enter, a lot of times uh, when I go out of town, I forget that I'm a fucking professional comic that's been doing this more than half my life, and lives on fucking stage, and can handle himself anywhere. Would actually prefer it to get fucking weird. Pow, look out, just shit my pants, just coffee.coop, get that at wtfpod.com. Now, there was a little bit of trouble. Uh, Friday night in between shows. Uh, and also, I know some people in Denver got upset with me by t- saying that it's the drunkiest place I've been, you know, other than Glasgow, Scotland. I know some of you took umbrage with that. Uh, but uh, 7.30 show, a woman had to be taken out of the club because she vomited. All right, so that doesn't happen to me. Let me think. Anywhere ever, Denver, 7.30, not even 9 o'clock show. 7.30, a grown person couldn't hold their liquor. I don't know the backstory, but... I'm not making fun of you if I make fun of your town and I wasn't even making fun of Denver. if you're gonna tell me it's not a drunkie town, I'm gonna to tell you you're a liar. I'm gonna be in Montreal Thursday through Saturday. I'm doing a solo show up there on Saturday. I'm doing some uh, televised gala. I think I'm doing Ari Shafir's show. I might do one of Attel's midnight shows that I'm gonna be up there at the festival if you're if you're up and around. So for, what am I talking about? Saturday night. Saturday night uh, Chris Charpentier is opening for me first show's great everything's timing out i'm feeling good i'm feeling like a comic i'm feeling like a fucking rock star because the comedy works is so hot what a hot room and then then it happens yeah then it happens uh they're loading the audience in and i see some uh, commotion there's commotion out front i go out front to get a soda there's commotion i'm like no 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 it can't be god we've come so far and we've only, we're three shows in and they're all so good why why bachelorettes now i was almost out four for four it could have been bachelorettes bride wearing a goofy thing not a dick or a veil but something i don't remember there was like 10 of them and i'm like oh fuck no god damn it no why why do they come to the comedy clubs why do they come who set this tradition rolling when was it ever okay why won't they learn Oh, my God, I just turned defensive and horrible. And I was like, if they fuck this show up, the problem is this. And I'm like, I'm going to try to do a theater next time because I don't need this shit. I said that out loud to the woman who books the place or within earshot. Because here's my argument, is that like, you know, I have fans, they come to see me, I want to do a good show for the fans. I don't want to have to babysit a dozen dumb, buzzed women who want nothing but attention, who don't usually care who the comic is. I don't know who made this a thing. Some comedian in the 80s must have just made an entire show about them in a positive way, and that set this whole ball rolling. It's almost like it's in a book of what to do at a bash for bachelorettes. A fucking bachelor party. You know, I was like living. There was like 10 of them. It was huge. And they paid extra to have these certain seats. And the mother is with, the mother of the bride is with them and she's the loudest of them all. And they're sitting and it's before the show and they're already doing that thing. Like, hey, what are you guys, do you guys want to get a shot? I like, woo, woo, woo. So I'm fucking losing it. But you know, it is part of the job. You know, I'm a stand up comedian. I can do stand up comedy anywhere. That is what I, I, that's what I've done with my life. I've prepared. I've played every situation. And I don't know what kind of night they wanted to have, but I could make it a bad one. I could I'll make it memorable in the worst way possible. So the first guy goes up and they're already fucking out of control. And then the the club shuts them down a bit, and they got a guy literally standing over them. And uh yeah, it's not the way I wanted it to be, but it was the way it had to be. So he kind of plows through his set, he does all right, and I'm like, what the fuck am I gonna? This has got to be good. And I'm already like jacked up. And I just got out there and I just eviscerated them for 10 minutes. I got down on my hands and knees and said some of the most heinous shit possible to preemptively destroy the possibility of these drunk, needy women who care not for the rest of the audience to just feel the wrath of me. But also give them attention. I was relatively diplomatic. I did get very heinous. I did say some awful things, but I was like, oh, what I meant to say was congratulations. Uh, I did. uh, It was fun for everybody. It was. It was. And you know what? They behave themselves and, and I would engage with them occasionally. And I think my fans had a good time. I had a slight edge on. I had a slight edge on. I say some, I said some things I could, I can't take back, but, uh, they, uh, they seemed to have a good time afterwards. The bride came up to me. She said, that was really fun. And, uh, it was exactly what we wanted. And, and I thought like, oh my God, I must be losing my touch. How come she's not crying? I must be losing my edge. Why are they all so perky? And then uh, and then I said, well, okay, well, I'm glad you had a good time. And the club, you know, they, the club doesn't like to kick 10 people out. They need to make money too. And and then the bride said to me, she said, well, the one thing was they, they did kick my mother out. And I'm like, all right, so it's a win-win for everybody. There's your story. Everyone had a good time. I got to dump about, you know, 15 years of cynicism about marriage onto your lap. And, uh, and your mother got kicked out. I, I think everybody gets a good story and everyone had a good time. And then after the show the woman who uh who booked the play says don't you dare tell me you're going to go do a theater i'm like i'm sorry i didn't know what was going to happen i was just being a diva i was being a dick i was being a you know a, a sensitive baby and and the honest guy thing about it is i love doing comedy clubs you know i know i waffle and i make myself crazy before i go on but when you have a hands-on situation like that that kind of pushes you to to get into a you know a hostile mode which i used to be in all the time but sometimes now it's sort of a gift and just to go hands-on and improvise about you know 30 minutes of an hour and 15 minute show and just kind of ride it out and make it work and and ride the wave of hostility and charm and diplomacy and just how, how was that not entertaining it was one of the best shows i got i got a partial standing over for that one too and i'll never do anything but comedy works when i go to denver because i'm a club comic at heart and you know that's the job man sometimes you got to deal with a woman with a dick hat on even though this one didn't have one i mean i'm not happy about it And if you're a comic and you're listening to this, I mean, don't get me wrong. We all have the same reaction, which is, ah, fuck. Bachelorettes. God damn it. How am I going to get my work done? Now it's just going to be a war. It's going to be a battle. It's just going to be me. Representing everything that's bad about men for them. But it worked out. It worked out, folks. Thank you for being concerned okay all right let's let's talk movies and let's find out who leonard malton is let's let's get into leonard malton because he's really just he's almost like a. don't know how many dimensions leonard malton has for you but now it's not just going to be on the screen now we're going to make him three-dimensional that's my hope and i believe i did that so let's talk to leonard malton Leonard Malton, you are infamous now in in the world of podcasting. You've been made a legend
1: by uh, by my uh, my comrade Doug Benson. Yes, who did he invent that game? He invented that game and has made me cool. Yeah. He's giving me street cred that I never had before. Finally. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're
0: waiting you live, for that You live life. long.
1: You live long enough, Mark. Yeah. Anything's possible. <laughs> you got Anything's lucky. Anything's possible. I got damn lucky.
0: But, you know, people love that game.
1: Oh, and, they do. Uh, people come up to me all the time who don't know me from any other form of- uh, is that uh, something? Of, of uh, communication, but they love Doug's podcast and they love that game.
0: That's hilarious. I, I don't feel that I'm very good at it, but I did have a miraculous poll- uh on uh you know naming i it was it was actually the movie was the wizard of oz but mm-hmm. i i had to name the top three build names right and it came down to you know was it going to be was it going to be uh the the was it was going to be bert lar right or was it going to be uh, who played the tim and haley uh, jack haley, jack haley. Right. and you know i i went with bert lar as the third you know and i and i got it and it was wow. is astounding
1: nobody <laughs> i mean that wouldn't be a poll for you but, you well, know, for- no, no, I don't know this. I'm the world's worst player of that game. Oh, boy. Don't ask anybody, including Doug. I am the world's worst player of that game. My mind doesn't sort information that way.
0: Yeah, because you wrote this stuff down from research. Yeah. It's not like you wrote the books from your memory.
1: Yeah, exactly. And now we live in the age of Google where you got to look things up.
0: Yeah, that's you know? all.
1: Or, I mean, you could actually go back to my book. Yeah. if you you know yeah. old fashioned enough to want to do right. that. Right? Well, Why
0: think at all when you have the Google?
1: That's right. Exactly.
0: But what interests me really is that uh, y- you know I studied, I minored in film criticism, you know, in 1981. Mm-hmm. So you know there was a period in my life where, in uh, you know, growing up, my my grandmother's next door neighbor in New Jersey, Pompton Lakes, New Jersey. Where are you from? you're from, Jersey, right? Uh,
1: North Jersey, Teenek.
0: Uh huh. Bo- well, though
1: born in Manhattan, yeah, lived there till I was four.
0: Yeah, what where what do you come from exactly? First immigrant, first generation. No, 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 second, second generation. Uh huh. Yeah, very was, assimilated parents. Uh huh. And where where did you where they live in Manhattan?
1: On the Upper West Side, on West Seventy Seventh Street. And then when my wife and I got married, we moved to two blocks away from on where purpose? I had grown up on 79th Ninth and Amsterdam. Really, on purpose? You knew it? No, not on purpose. I I did know it. Yeah, but it was just I liked the Upper West Side, and and there was this new building that had just gone up. Uh And uh, my wife and I were, you know, uh, apartment hunting. And here was this wonderful building. Great location. yeah. Everything was new. Right. You know, and ready to move in. And we did it. And we could afford it. Even Uh better, we could afford it. Back then? Then. (laughs) Then. (laughs) Jesus. That was 39 years ago.
0: Yeah. But you haven't lived in Manhattan in how long?
1: 31 years. Oh, you left. You came out here. Well, I got this, you know, I got this freak incident in my life. I got a phone call about auditioning for Entertainment Tonight toward the end of the first season. I To, to, to go back a half a step, like every author, yeah. you want to get on shows to promote your books. Sure. And I got lucky. I got on the Today Show. Yeah. And then I got lucky again. They had me back, and i uh-huh. just written a book about movie comedians from uh-huh. Charlie Chaplin to Woody Allen. uh uh-huh. And Gene Shalit interviewed me, and he yeah. couldn't have been nicer. Gene Shalit. And uh, he... He said, uh, we don't have to stick to these pre-interview things. Uh-huh. I said, no, talk about whatever you want. Yeah, So we had this loose, lively, funny conversation. Uh-huh. 3,000 miles away, somebody at Paramount Television saw this segment Yeah, and said to the new boss of this new show, "Yeah, you're looking for a film critic, aren't you? He said, yes. Yeah. So, well, you ought to check out this guy I saw on the Today Show. And my uh-huh. phone rang in New York. Yeah. The phone rang. Right. I pick up the phone. In your home. I'm home, right? I'm typing on my typewriter. You remember yeah, those? Yeah, sure. Sure. And uh, the guy says, would you be willing to audition? I said, yeah, sure. Mm -hmm. And they flew me out to L.A. to do an audition of of a couple of movie reviews. I'm shortening the the very long story. Sure. And uh, they used my auditions on the air. Huh. And they never officially hired me. It took a long time for them to hire me, but they just kept flying me out and having me tape stuff. Uh Uh-huh. So I commuted, essentially, for a year and a half from New York to L.A. Weekly? No, every, every third week at first, which was sort of livable. Yeah. I was always home on the weekend with yeah. my wife and then home for two full weeks. Right. And then back for a week. Mm-hmm. And then it got to be every other week, and that really took a toll. And oh, yeah, I was, it's exhausting. I was, spend, I was spending all my time planning. Who am I going to have dinner with? When am I going to see this film? Should I see this film in New York? at this? No, maybe I'll wait and see it in L.A. Wasted energy. Yeah. And my wife finally... Ultimately it's always my wife <laughs> Alice said yeah. enough yeah enough already so we sublet our apartment and moved out here temporarily sure 31 years ago and never left never left our daughter was born here she's yeah. a california girl well
0: I, I, what 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 compelled you like what what was your what did your dad do what kind of gr- household did you grow mm, up in uh,
1: my dad was an immigration judge wow and my mother was a housewife who had been in show business she was a she sang in nightclubs when she was a teenager and played the accordion during the big band era no no d- d- during the cabaret and nightclub era okay you might say and uh was and, she a novelty and, actor no no she was uh, she was a singer she was a vocalist she was she played accordion oh, in, in earnest in company- no no if you heard her <laughs> play you would know it wasn't in earnest yeah. but she could accompany herself uh-huh and uh and so she still did occasional club dates uh-huh. when I was growing up sang sang around here and there
0: and so but most of the growing up was in teennic
1: yeah. And my dad, my uncle died when I was a year and a half old, and he had been a pianist and a songwriter. Right. Never a great success, but he had songs published and recorded. Uh Uh-huh. And my father took over his ASCAP estate and membership Uh and subscribed to Weekly Variety. Okay. And as a kid, I found Variety just absolutely fascinating and exotic.
0: Because of the the movie stars?
1: No, because of everything. Uh Uh-huh. Everything about show business, not just the movie stars. They used to have a column mark that went, NY to LA. Uh huh. Who was traveling that week from New York to LA? LA to London. huh. And, you know, yeah. uh, uh, NY to, to you know, all these things. It's like, wow. So it was glamorous. It was glamorous. Glamorous. exciting. I would, read, I would read nightclub reviews yeah, from yeah. Vegas. Right. And uh, nightclub reviews, uh, people I wish I could go and see. Like for. who? Who were your people then? Like, oh, you, like this it, is old school show business, sure, you like, know. So, like, no, like like Ethel Merman? Well, no, no, well, Louis Prima and Keeley Smith. Uh-huh. Loved them, used to watch them whenever they were on the Ed Sullivan show. So you were a jazz uh, guy. Yeah, jazz and pop. Yeah, uh-huh. Yeah. Love Mel Torme. Was that your first passion,
0: passion was the music?
1: I was always exposed to music and I took piano lessons. Yeah. And uh, there was always music going on in our household.
0: Uh-huh. But yeah. did you go down to like, I don't know, how old
1: are you now? I'm 63.
0: But did, were you uh, were you in uh, close enough to New York to go to like the Village Vanguard or go see shows? Or oh well,
1: n- when I got when I got to be like twelve, they let me go into the city by myself. And mostly, that I was amazing? I, I remember when I went to my grandmother's house
0: like I was thirteen or fourteen. You take the bus in. Yeah, you would never let a twelve-year-old kid. go. Oh no, thing. no, of course not. No one thought. No one batted an eyelash. Just jump on the bus, go to the Port Authority, right? Yeah, yeah. either
1: that, or I could go across the George Washington. Where I was in North yeah. Jersey, yeah. take the bus across the George Washington Bridge, and then take the subway downtown. Yeah. Either way, yeah, and uh, a friend and I would spend the day in the city but we'd be going to the New Yorker theater with the Revival theaters, The Thalia, the New Yorker uh-huh uh, the Museum of Modern Art which showed you know Great. repertory films every day. that was what we were mostly doing in high school it was, yeah it, uh-huh. when I got a little older I went to NYU uh-huh and it was around that time I really got seriously interested in jazz uh-huh. and I did get to go to the Vanguard and I did get to go to you know the half note and some uh-huh. some other, some other uh, places like that and then when I got out of college, Parenthetically. Yeah. And I was freelancing and, and actually trying to make a living at freelancing Yeah, for the first time. I said to a friend, I would really love to write about jazz, but how do you sort of announce to the world, hey, I'm here to write about jazz? Yeah. And he said, you know, the Village Voice takes freelance. I said, yeah. they do? He said, yeah. So I wrote a piece on spec. Uh-huh. A review and sent it into The Voice, and they bought it. It's great. On what? Uh, uh, It was a review of a a great pianist and band leader named Duke Pearson, who was at the Half Note. Uh Uh-huh. And uh, I got a check for 65 bucks... And I think it was the most exciting paycheck I've ever gotten in my life.
0: It was that the first time you were paid as a writer. No, no, no. I'd been published before. Uh-huh. Uh huh. But I, it was uh, the Village Voice, and it, it, was, it
1: was yeah, and it was about jazz. Uh huh. Which which I'd fallen in love with. Who uh, who was the only uh, what Nat Hentoff was he writing yet? He was well. He still he did his column for many many years. Yeah. But uh, he he was a separate you know name uh-huh. byline. But Gary Giddens started. At, uh, writing for the Voice at the same time I did, and he has gone on to become one of the preeminent jazz writers of our generation.
0: Well, when you say that
1: you 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 went to NYU, what were you what were you studying? Well, at that time there was no undergraduate film study program. That's how long ago this is, right? Uh, but film and, study is different than film production. So right, you, yeah, and I, and I didn't want to be a filmmaker. You just wanted to write about film. Uh, right, so what I did was I was a journalism major. It turned out to be the right choice. Uh-huh. And then they were very nice. They let me cherry pick film courses I wanted to take for credit. Uh-huh. So I got to, to, to do some interesting stuff film-wise there and the history of documentary and, you know, interesting stuff like that.
0: Well, what compelled you to, to, like, to take that approach? I mean, I mean, you say you were going to see these these movies as a kid in revival houses, so you were already, you know, kind of fascinated with going back to the silent era and going yeah. back to the beginning of film. Like, I had to watch all those movies. You know, I had to watch, you know, D.W. Griffith's Intolerance. I had to watch, you know, mm-hmm. I had to watch, uh, you know City Lights. I mean, mm-hmm. I loved watching them, but yeah. there are there movies that I wouldn't have seen otherwise. Right. Hadn't I been in uh, in a film studies program? My teacher was actually a, a fairly renowned British uh, film critic. I guess his name was Roger Manvell. Oh yeah, very well known. Uh huh. And I taught, I took history of film with Manvell mm-hmm. uh, for a year, and uh, but I I became sort of, I don't know, it wasn't disillusion, but I became fascinated with the the dialogue of criticism, which I don't know exists as much as it used to at all anymore so when you got into it what was
1: it that really kind of you know compelled you to write about film well it was film history that really got me hooked Mm -hmm. I I never thought of myself becoming a film critic at Mm -hmm. all right I didn't think I was smart enough to do that and or erudite enough to do that were there but, film critics around at the time? Oh, sure. Well, that was the era of uh, Andrew Saris and Pauline. So, Cahiers de Cinéma. You know. Yeah, yeah, was, I remember happening. I remember reading Saris's original essay about the, the the auteur theory, right, when it came out, which was you know that uh, was Cahiers
0: de Cinéma, right? Or, yes, yeah.
1: earth shattering. Right. And then he published his paperback, uh, New American uh, on the American Cinema, which sort of collated all of that material together. Andrew Saris that's right, and and then there was Sight and Sound, the, mm-hmm. that magazine, British magazine, yep. And you know, see,
0: when I started, so that was already happening. So you're yeah. looking at that stuff. This is high minded shit, man.
1: Yeah, but th- that was way that was kind of above my head. I mean, well, what I was, were they trying to do? Did you think?
0: I mean, when you were taking that in, you know, as somebody who 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 spent the life writing about film, I'm just asking you from a personal yeah. point of view because yeah. I read this stuff too. And yeah. there's a moment there where, or 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 what's his name, Uh, jury Lotman's piece on, on semiotics and cinema, and mm-hmm. there there are these uh, you know, these uh, Peter Wolin, yeah. his stuff on semiotics. Well, yeah, I couldn't do that. Well, I know, but like I I couldn't either. But it seemed it seemed so important to me that 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 like I was so upset that I couldn't understand. Yeah, I never we, got as far as semiotics. It, no. we, it's hard.
1: No. It, but what is does no, it see, mean? I, I I'm. I fell in love with movies largely at first because of TV. Because uh-huh. as a child of the first TV generation, yeah. TV was a living museum of movies. Right. I go every day. I watched Laurel and Hardy yeah. every single day. Of How my, great was my that? On, was it Channel Eleven? Channel Eleven. Exactly. Yeah. In Jersey, right? Yeah. And uh, every day I would Bowery watch the, Boys, the Little Rascals. Yeah. The every Three Stooges. Day I would watch the Stooges when they came on. I would watch uh, an endless, endless old cartoons. Yeah. Thousands, hundreds, you know, uh-huh. a week. Couldn't get enough of them, uh-huh. and uh, and unlike a lot of my friends, I was curious about them. The difference between me and normal <laughs> kids mm-hmm. was that I wanted to know more. Right, and I went to the library, and of course I watched Walt Disney every week. I came home, watched the Mickey Mouse Club every day. I watched Walt Disney on his weekly TV show, and he would often delve into his own history. You were obsessed. How, yeah, I got hooked the yeah. way some kids get hooked on baseball or right. something, and I got hooked on movies and then movie history. And I went to the local library where I spent a lot of my youth and there weren't that many books to take out at that time. Yeah. There was one book on Disney. It was a good one. But, yeah. but it was just that one. Yeah. There was one book on Chaplin. Uh, was it Manvell's uh, book? No, it was mm-hmm. Theodore Huff's book. Okay. And uh, uh, which they then dis- they had a discontinued copy I was able to buy for 10 cents. That was the first movie book I ever bought <laughs> at a library <laughs> yeah. sale, yeah. Over, overstock sale, right, 10 right. cents. Good deal. Uh, a wonderful deal. And uh, I just I gobbled all this up. Uh, a book on Laurel and Hardy came out when I was 10 or 11 years old, took it out from the library, read it, returned it, took it out again, read uh-huh. it again, read it twice, returned it, took it out again, read it again.
0: And then and then you became sort of uh, you yourself, you know, wrote on these film comedians.
1: Well when I was 12 or 13, uh, I started writing about all this stuff. In my own little homemade magazine, what we used to call in those days a fanzine, and what, what what were you writing about? What was your approach? I well, at that time, I was just you know trying to simulate what I'd seen in print already, writing on the career of Buster Keaton, sure, okay, the career of Douglas Fairbanks. Right. But you were twelve, like yeah, okay, right, you, yeah. Know, you know, trying to imitate a grown up, uh-huh. essentially, uh-huh. and uh, and publishing myself. And then I found out that there was a whole world of these fanzines. And I offered my services to two of them in particular. At twelve, at thirteen, you were thirteen. Yep. Did they know you were thirteen? Only after they accepted the articles. Uh huh. Once that once they took, and there was no money involved. This is uh-huh. all labor of love. This uh-huh. was, these are all amateur publishers and editors. Uh. But I was just thrilled to see my byline, and you know, and it was very they probably they
0: published them even though they knew yeah. you were thirteen. Yeah. And uh, what was what? What do you think? Because it's interesting that later. You know, punk rock culture. You know, it sort of. You know, kind of built itself out the same way. You know, mm-hmm. through zines and local and yeah. local scenes. So, what was the community of film fanzines? You know, driven by what, what was it? Just uh, uh, you know, film nerds? Was it people that were? Was it an, an ongoing discourse about certain uh, no, films? Uh, there was nothing. Perform- there was
1: nothing that you could even uh, remotely call a discourse. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was a bunch of guys who loved old movies. Okay and i i was on the young end of the curve mm-hmm. i wasn't the only young person but i was a rarity huh and what was nice was that the grown-ups took me in uh-huh they were very kind to me uh and and accepted me well what was your
0: sort of at, at that young age I, I imagine it's hard to remember to really discern that you know an obsession with old movies uh is it, there was a lot of those guys around for a while you know, I don't know how many of them are still around, but there was a period there, I think, that, that the nostalgia for, for silent films or musicals, it sort of it seemed to have peaked out during, you know, after uh, Jack Haley Jr. made That's Entertainment mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and some of those movies, that there was a heightened appreciation uh, for, for the film, silent film comedies and, and for, for some mm-hmm. of that stuff that, that seems to be almost gone now.
1: Well, the sil- actually, the silent comedies are alive and well. Are they? There, there are a surprising number of showings all over the country, all over the world, with live music, sometimes. With Didn't full they just orchestras. release
0: a Buster Keaton box?
1: Oh well, they've reissued it. Yeah, it on was Blu-ray re- now on Blu-ray. How yeah. is that
0: great? Yeah, I need to great. get one.
1: Oh, they're fantastic. Uh, you know, nothing, nothing is quite the same as seeing it. In person with live music. But
0: do you think, I guess my, my question is, you know, in looking at the nostalgia for that, is that, you know, in the, you know, once the 60s come around and once the auteur theater is established and once you have this 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 new understanding of film, that it seemed to me that there was people that really held on to the purity of, of what the simplicity of film at that time. Mm-hmm. And 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 I think there was a fear that it would just be steamrolled and and and, and disappear or something. <laughs> oh,
1: but it mattered so much. Uh, this is not an original thought. Uh-huh. But in that era of Pauline Kael and Andrew Saras, we're talking about mid to mid '60s through through the '70s. Mm-hmm. Uh, people debated film. People were passionate about film. People talked about the new films. It was a big deal. The way people talk now about breaking bad right or about house of cards right or about uh, but it was a smaller g- it was like a smaller group of people it was a much now, now smaller like,
0: group the, the dialogue is is consumes the entire planet yeah, exactly we all have uh, access to each
1: other we have access to each other unlimited uh access to it yeah. un- unfettered access unfettered to 140 character <laughs> access to everybody exactly i mean when i tell people what i used to have to do to publish my fanzine first i i started with a mimeograph machine and this one were 13 even before, actually, but like the ones you just gave me from the seventies. Those are those. Well, by that time, was professionally printed, right? Uh, from a local printer. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And but when I started Film Fan Monthly, right, March, it, it was okay. Did it for nine years. I edited and published that magazine.
0: What's well, interesting, see, because so this is 1972, Leonard. It's yeah. 1972, yeah. And on the cover of these two that you gave me, you know, you have—is uh, that Gable and Lombard? Right. No, uh, Harlow. Harlow. Gable and Gene Harlow from Wings. What is that from? Uh, no, that's from—I'm um, not sure which film that's from. That—that that could be from Hold
1: Your Man. Okay. And then you got Will Rogers. Yep. Now this is 1972, Leonard. Yes. This was not the discourse. No, this—no, this was not the discourse. Which is why this was always an oddball magazine for. For you know, for a very specialized niche, we didn't call it that then. Niche audience of, <laughs> for people of, that like those old movies. People like those old movies, yes. And, and even then, even when I was publishing this, yeah, having Will Rogers on the cover was not a good commercial idea. No, no, I, know, I, I can't. I don't, I, it doesn't I, look like you were setting out to make a fortune. with no, this No, no, but but if I'd put even then, if I'd put Bogart on the cover. That would have been a better idea. But I have to assume but, that you had a Bogart cover at some point. Uh, no, don't assume. You didn't have, you didn't. No, play, you I <laughs> had a Nigel play. Bruce cover. Uh-huh. You know, played, uh, you know, Dr. Watson to Basil Rathbone and Sherlock Holmes. Okay, so this wasn't just you. You were an editor. I was an editor, publisher. I licked stamps, stuffed envelopes. My dad helped me take care of the business but end you, of you it. Were,
0: you were driven. And, you know, yeah. by this point, by 1972, I, I, uh, Easy Rider is out. Yes. Uh, Five Easy Pieces is out. yes
1: uh you you know what the uh what the maybe the longer not the long goodbye but uh altman is starting to flourish and coppola i mean the early 70s you know the great flowering of american cinema of new american cinema the the, the,
0: the american auteurs right and And you've got which, which are
1: now the touchstone for all young filmmakers that i meet they look to that period as as the the high point as, right, as the, for uh, their
0: role model sure the anti-hero and the you know the existential character but but what i what i'm looking at is
1: that you've got gable and harlow <laughs> <laughs> on the cover of your ma- what were you avoiding leonard swimming I mean, against the tide is Mark, that what you were just doing just swimming no not deliberately uh-huh not i i saw i saw easy rider i saw five easy pieces i absorbed all of that too what was, was your feeling it. oh you did I loved love it. I loved all Oh god altman i was uh, altman was just just uh, too much. To McCabe play. and Mrs. Miller is a masterpiece. I hated it the first time and fell in love with it the second time. I've watched it like nine or ten
0: times. I mean, look, I love them. Yeah, they're ones I have problems with, uh, but, uh, like, there's... Like, I don't... The Long Goodbye doesn't work for me.
1: Not my favorite.
0: It's not my favorite either.
1: Nashville. Great. Pure heaven. Pure heaven. Absolute pure Nash. And I got to, I got to meet him. I got to chat with him a couple times. Uh, but what know. was the intention? So you, you go from this.
0: And yeah. You're not writing... You're not writing movie criticism. No, you're 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 writing. Uh, what would you Mo- call it? Movie history. Okay, and then
1: interviewing as many of the the uh, veterans of that era as I could. Who'd you interview at well, that time? Well, see, I mean, again, offbeat. When I made my first journeys out here to uh, uh, La La Land in '69, and what were you coming out for then? Uh, I came out to do a bunch of interviews for my magazine. For this magazine, right? Film Fan Monthly. Yeah. Yep. Now, what was the public? What was the readership? Uh, about 1500 people uh-huh. all over the world mm-hmm. and uh uh and you know and it was very personal i mean the I, the kind of mail i got in those you remember mail sure yeah with stamps right yeah uh-huh. i used to get mail uh-huh. you know people people who loved it loved it like what kind of yeah. mail? Like I'm so glad you're keeping the spirit of this alive. Yeah, and... yeah. Or 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 sending uh, uh, additional thoughts or corrections or saying, oh, you should have mentioned his performance in this film. That oh was God, a great sure. one too. Yeah. But I came out here and I interviewed Ralph Bellamy. You did? Yeah. Is I he inter- still around? No, oh. no, they're all gone. But he worked late. He, he yeah. worked well into his career. Mm-hmm. He, he's in uh, Trading, uh, places? You know, Trading Places. Trading uh-huh. Places with Eddie Murphy. You know that story? Uh uh-uh. This is apparently a true story, and, and in fact, John Landis told me it was true, uh-huh. and he directed the movie. Eddie Murphy is in a, tr- a makeup trailer one morning. Yeah. Ralph Bellamy and Don Amici, two, you know, long time movie actors yeah. are sitting there and they're all getting made up. Yeah. And Ralph says, you know, uh, Don, I figured out this is my 98th movie. How many have you made? And he says, uh, gee, I think I've made about 50. Uh, yeah. And Eddie Murphy says, hey, between us, we've made 150 movies. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so I interviewed Ralph Bellamy. I interviewed Joan Blondell. Uh-huh. I interviewed character actors like Grady Sutton, who played W.C. Field's idiot nephew in The Bank Dick, who was a wonderful guy.
0: And you were thrilled I, to do it. Thrilled. Thrilled beyond words. And, and when you sat with these people, who I even imagine at that time were getting on in years. Yes, indeed. You know, what What were the type of, what would you ask
1: W.C. Field's sidekick? <laughs> well, I mean, I asked him how he got started. Right. Uh, and he had interesting stories of, you know, coming out and breaking into the movies in the 1920s. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm am t- talking to somebody who was out here in the '20s, Mark. So you were completely you know,
0: immersed in the myth of Hollywood.
1: Oh yes, absolutely.
0: You and loved it all. The
1: realities too, mm-hmm. you know. But I mean, but it was wonderful. He, you know, Fields liked him. Fields used to him. Uh, his name was Grady Sutton, mm-hmm. and Fields used him several times because uh, he he played off him well. He knew he was a good foil, mm-hmm. and uh, and he wasn't trying to steal a scene. Uh-huh. You know, and so so they were they were they, they were simpatico. I interviewed uh, Mitchell Lysen, who was a, an art director turned director in the Golden Age. He directed two scripts by Billy Wilder and Charles Brackett, mm-hmm. and and uh, Wilder always said it was watching what Mitchell Lysen did wrong with his screenplays that made him want to direct. Uh huh. <laughs> but, <I mean, laughs> but I interviewed Mitchell Lysen. He was a very interesting guy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, so I, you know, I couldn't get enough of this stuff. And I just it, loved it.
0: And the so, like well, you said, you wrote, you talked to Gene Shalit about the great film comedians yeah what um what it, again i mean you, you call yourself a historian but you, there must have been you know what was your insight into who did you cover you you who did you, you cover buster keaton oh, no, Charlie Charlie Chaplin, Chaplin,
1: Chaplin, all the people you W.C. fields laurel and hardy wc he- fields may, harold lloyd may west harold lloyd harry langdon the three stooges uh Abben costello jerry lewis uh-huh uh danny Kaye, bob hope you did red, all that red skelton yeah that's that whole book which I'm preparing now to revive as an ebook on Kindle.
0: Uh-huh. And and that book sold well. It did pretty well. And what was this uh, again? History or were you? Did you go deeper into the the ideas of the types of comedy these people did?
1: Well, I I tried to bring some some perceptivity. Is that a word? Sure. To you know insight. To, uh, insight. Yeah. Into what they did and how they did it. Well, who was your and favorite? I also, and I also got to to interview people who'd worked with them. Uh-huh. To give some insight into their their M.O. Fatty you know? Arbuckle. Uh, Fatty Arbuckle. There's a chapter on him on Mabel Normand. Uh-huh. Who, you know the great comedian who worked opposite Chaplin. Did you, you read Jerry sense.
0: Stahl's book, I Fatty? Uh, no. You should read it.
1: I heard it was good. It's heavy. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a it's a novelization from the first from Fatty's point of view. Right. Right. Yeah. You know, that focuses right. on his drug addiction and his troubles. Yes. But uh, but you but it doesn't seem like it seemed like your entire uh not agenda but y- y- I, you you were not a tabloid guy you you didn't get oh no 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 i was not looking for dirt but but the, but you were not as fascinated I I I tend to think that there are people that are equally as fascinated in, in, in Hollywood for the dark reasons yeah. that you
1: are for the for
0: the light reasons.
1: That's true. Kenneth Anger covered that, that turf See, rather well. Another I name,
0: another name that nobody gives a shit about anymore.
1: <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I,
0: I mean, is Hollywood Babylon even in print? I mean he oh, started I'm sure it, is. it.
1: I'm sure it is. He started it. Yeah, I know. He invented a lot of that stuff. The glorification too. of it, the elevating yeah, yeah, of it. Yeah. I mean, obviously, tabloid had been around forever. Right. But we. Oh, Confidential was in the fifties, right. know, when that was the right the, the really seediest, seemiest of them all. Did you like uh, L.A. Confidential? I
0: did. It's like I, I rewatched it. You know, I've a tr- like I'm, I'm very critical of modern noir, mm-hmm. and you know, I didn't quite, you know, I didn't quite process it uh, a- as honoring. Uh, you know the form as much as I. Re- I didn't realize it did, but it's a pretty oh, spectacular Curtis, movie. Curtis
1: hansen's a very, very smart. savvy guy. It's smart man, and he knows films as well as anybody alive. Uh huh. So yeah, he. Just so
0: who are your favorite film comedians? I, I, I know everybody. A big book of, I,
1: everybody I just mentioned. all of them, but yeah. you must
0: have had one that really moved you.
1: Chaplin is my god. Is he Chaplin? Is kind. Of, it all starts with Chaplin. It seems okay, to me, you know, and I, I find him endlessly fascinating. Endlessly fascinating. Uh, for what reason? Well, if you've ever seen Kevin Brownlow and David Gill's great documentary called Unknown Chaplin, they uh-huh. found all of his raw footage right. from a certain period in his, his career. Yeah. And so he, he shot everything. He rehearsed and worked out his ideas while the camera was rolling. Right. They figured this out, organized all this footage, right. and collated it into a documentary that is just mesmerizing. Uh-huh. You see him develop an idea. And oh, wow. refine it. Right. And get it better and get it better and then get it even better and then finally get it perfect. Mhm. And uh, you know, he he was he was unique. He was he was truly a genius. One of a kind.
0: Well, there was a, you know, in my recollection the, the the sort of uh celebration of Chaplin a lot of it revolved around you know, his characterization of the underdog yeah. and you know and his incredible, you know, empathy for for people who, who who were you know downtrodden, right? That but you know- re-
1: remember too that he was the first real superstar. Mm-hmm. A Word they didn't coin in mm-hmm. those days. Yeah, but he started working exactly a hundred years ago. Actually, this is his centenary year in film. Uh-huh. Uh huh. It was nineteen fourteen. Max Senate signed him at the very end. I think December nineteen thirteen. Uh-huh. started making films in nineteen fourteen. Now picture this: there's not only no internet and no cable mm-hmm. and no, none of that. Not only is there no television, there isn't even radio yet. Right. Okay? All there is is newspapers and magazines. Uh That's communication. Right. Within months of his screen debut, he was a star. And by the end of 1914, he was a worldwide phenomenon. Mm -hmm. Not just a star, a phenomenon. They put these standees of him outside theaters and say, he's here today. People would flock. Uh, There were suddenly, there were Chaplin imitators. There were Charlie Chaplin costume contests. uh, There were Charlie Chaplin comic strips and animated films within another year or so. Uh, Truly a phenomenon. And it all happened before modern communication. That's how potent he was.
0: And then he started United Artists with what, Mary Pickford? Mary Pickford and Douglas
1: Fairbanks and Griffith. Yep. Uh Uh-huh a oh, amazing history amazing history
0: yeah I was like I was obsessed and fascinated with pictures of old movie stars like I, it was mm-hmm. weird because I never made it because my grandmother you know sort of was into it and then you know I, I just I, I could probably identify more stars than I would know their work it's weird the pictures to me were, were very moving for some reason like I couldn't tell you that I'd seen a Douglas Fairbanks movie mm-hmm. but I know exactly what he looks like
1: mm-hmm. and well there was an awareness you see th- 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 before the era of narrow casting uh-huh. you know before this everybody running their own channel, everybody running their their own communications industry uh-huh. in in miniature uh there was more uh, of a consensual or consensus popular culture, yeah. You know, right. if, I, if when I was... everyone's on you know, when there were three networks in exactly. studio, three networks right. we all got the same shit. So so if you wanted to see the Beatles on yep. the Ed Sullivan show, you had to sit through Sophie Tucker. <laughs> you know, or Myron Cohen. You know, and Myron Cohen on the Ed yeah. Sullivan show. Yes, exactly. In or a, or Senor Wentz's God bless him, I, who I got to meet. In a, a
0: rare non Yiddish
1: performance <laughs> from Myron Cohen. <laughs> so you were exposed to these other forms of show business. Mm just by accident or osmosis. Mm-hmm. Everybody was. Right. Everyone no one didn't know who Senor Wences was. That's right. In nineteen sixty two, you know, or nineteen sixty five. Sure. Uh he was ubiquitous. Yeah. And uh and we should explain that he was one of the great ventriloquists who in used show his business history. Who used among other things his hands. <laughs> Johnny was the little guy in this hand. Yeah. He had Pedro in the box. Uh-huh. Oh that's Sorry. all right. It's all right. It's right. Great, great act. Yeah, And he lived to be a hundred and one. Mm-hmm amazing man. I got to interview him. What was his real name? Uh, Wenceslas, I forget his last name, Moreno. Uh Wenceslas Moreno. Uh Uh-huh. I met him and his wife. They were lovely. Uh Uh-huh. I have a picture of me with Wences and Pedro in the box when my beard was very dark. Uh Uh-huh and his wife said i looked like pedro so i have a picture of us together
0: <laughs> oh that's sweet so the point being that you know that that for for you chaplin represented the birth of, of yeah. the power of film yes and and, and and the
1: birth of screen comedy really uh-huh and and the individual screen comedian and, and but there, that, were, there there were comics before him but he really set the standard and but most of it was slapstick because they you know there was no sound right but he within ju- again within just a year or two he starts finding more to it than simply knock about stuff, than simply kicking somebody in the rear end and then running well he Well, yeah,
0: the, the sort of heavy-hearted moral tales. Yes. Well,
1: yeah. I mean, some of them subtler than that. Uh-huh. There was more nuance in him. Like than, what? Than, well, a lot of his early films. The Immigrant is uh-huh. a wonderful two- re- He did these 12 short subjects Yeah. he was being paid a uh, fortune of money for mutual comedies, mutual films. Uh, within two years' time, they're called the, the Mutual Dozen. Uh-huh. And these dozen films, Easy Street, The Immigrant, The Rink... Uh, 1 a.m. Uh, the Cure, uh, they're all great little films. They're they're l- little models of perfection of of storytelling in the comedic form. Mm-hmm. And and and, and there and and when you see that documentary, you see how hard he worked to make it look so easy. So he was sort of a, you know a, not
0: only a gifted storyteller, but you know his meticulous you know, physical craftsman. Oh yeah. But you know he you know he definitely had. Uh, a vision and his heart was in the right place and he's, he developed a vision yeah
1: he developed a vision and and and, and it kept growing and when he started to in, uh, include elements of pathos uh-huh. and, and uh, wistfulness in his film not everybody liked that but like, where did a, that stick stick start to comment.
0: Well, in the features he,
1: he he approaches it in the shorts but then when he made the kid with jackie yeah. coogan yeah that's a real tearjerker and it still works as a tearjerker mm-hmm. because coogan is such a natural uh, an adorable kid and his relationship with Charlie is so endearing yeah that it, it tears your heart out it's and it's just wonderful the gold rush is pretty the gold rush is wonderful yeah these, what these, was these that heavy set films. guy that played Max Wayne yeah
0: when they're eating the shoe. You know that name,
1: Mark. Yeah, You know Max Swain. I do know yeah, Max yeah. Swain.
0: Yeah, I mean, it is part of me. I don't have the time to, to like, I, I don't t- tend to get completely obsessed with things, but, mm-hmm. you know, the, I the, during a, a period in my life, I was very interested. Mm-hmm. Like, there, you know, you know, Keaton was a- astounding. And when you have teachers that are really telling you that, you know, to sort of contextualize it historically, which I think is a big problem because of the internet now and because of, of where culture is, is that everything sort of floats without context. Everything sort of floats Right, so uh, in a sort of a, 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 an ever-present now,
1: right? So, so where's the relative importance of things? Well, yeah, it,
0: it's yeah. it's getting lost. You, you, you know that you, they, there's no way to realize. Like, well, the, not only is this great, if people are like, well, I don't get it. It's like, well, no one had ever done it before. Yeah,
1: exactly. Yeah. My, when my daughter was in middle school, yeah, I think she was in tenth grade, mm-hmm. maybe maybe it was high school. Mm-hmm. One of her teachers was doing a film course and asked if I would come by and speak to the kids because they were watching Citizen Kane. Okay, so I stopped by one morning. It's high school, right? So they can't they can't watch a 2-hour movie during a class period. Right. So they're watching it in 20-minute chunks. That's crazy. In in you know, sitting at desks. Yeah. In a room where the light is spilling in through the so-called right. blackout curtains. Right. And and they're kids. Yeah. And he hasn't told them anything about what else was going on in the world in 1941. They haven't seen what other films looked like in 1941. Right. They have no context. Right. I mean, this is like the world's worst way to watch a great movie yeah. you couldn't invent or maybe on an airplane <laughs> if they'd done all that and was on an airplane that could yeah. have been worse right but that would be the only way right and it's like you know, what are you going to say to these kids and then of course you're saying to them okay here's the world's greatest movie watch yeah. it yeah uh, well, appreciate what, it well what did you do i tried i tried to give them a little background <laughs> uh-huh a little context to say how revolutionary it was for its time it's not for an its easy time. movie no no, I, I think it's a compelling movie, no matter what. But you, the only way to really appreciate it fully is to get what he was doing that was so different, that was so unusual at that moment.
0: Well, I mean, but yeah, you know, for me, the 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 one thing that resonated with me in in the Orson Welles canon was. Uh, was Tollin cinematography? Yes, that you know that you know you, you know you got this genius. I think it was the first time I realized like you know there's a genius, but then there's the other genius.
1: Yeah, whoever the, who's the genius behind the genius? Well, I know. Well, see, when I was a kid, there was another place in Manhattan I used to go to that uh, called uh, it was the Huntington Hartford Museum. Uh-huh. The millionaire had uh, dedicated the museum on Columbus Circle, uh-huh. and they had a film program. And they brought in guests. And one day they had a tribute, one one month, they had a tribute to the director Ruben Mamoulian. Uh I'd never heard of him. And I never thought about directors. I was only interested in the stars. Right. I was like 15, 16, and I heard Mamoulian speak. Well, Mamoulian, who was the original director of Porgy and Bess on stage Mm -hmm. and Oklahoma on stage, and, uh, and then did landmark movies. He did this, uh, the, the, the most revolutionary early talking musical. Yeah. He did the first film in Technicolor. Had many milestones yeah. to his credit. Well, he was so enchanting and so articulate and so amusing and interesting. I said, oh, there's somebody behind the camera. Same as you're saying, right? The, the actors don't just get up and make this up. Yeah, somebody's guiding. Somebody's really thinking about this. Those are amazing moments where your mind gets blown. That was like, it. Yeah, that was it for me. Deepens he it.
0: To opened a door. It. So wait, hey, let's go. Let's go through your. I want to go through the. You know, some
1: specific questions about what you've written about because uh, you've written about a lot of stuff. Let me tell you my uh, emblematic story. I'm 17 years old. I'm in my senior year of high school, a teenek high school in New yeah. Jersey, right? Uh huh. And I'm publishing my fanzine now, which we now get professionally printed by a guy in the next town over. Uh, I don't have to run a mimeograph machine anymore. Mm -hmm. And a woman who's an English teacher in my school, who I don't have for any classes, but she's a nice lady, stopped me in the hall one day and she said, I really like what you're doing with your magazine. And I have a friend who's an editor at Signet Books in New York. And I think the two of you would really hit it off. Here's his number. I want you to call him. You're 17. Yeah. I want you to call him and go meet him after school one day okay so i call him and we make an appointment yeah and one day i take the bus yeah into manhattan and i bring a couple of copies of my magazine with me yeah and in my head of course i'm ideas are, are gurgling yeah oh maybe i'll get to write a book maybe yeah i'll write a book about uh, humphrey bogart or right, gu- right. goodness knows yeah i get there he's very nice we're breaking the ice in yeah. this little meeting and he says what'd you bring along i said well this is this magazine i published he said oh i love your magazine." He said, how do you know it? He said, well, I used to subscribe to it, yeah. which I didn't re- remember. I didn't put his <laughs> yeah. name together at all. He'd been in a different publishing house. He said, do you know this book that's out called Movies on TV? And there was a paperback edited by a guy named Stephen Shore. that was the only book of its kind, Yeah, a paperback book with little capsule reviews right. of thousands of movies. And I knew it backwards and forwards. I used it every day. Mm-hmm. He said, do you know that book? I said, I know it really well. He said, do you like it? I said, I like it as far as it goes. Yeah. He said, what would you do different? I said, well, I'd put in more cast names. He only lists like two cast names. Yeah. Uh, he doesn't list the director. I'd put, in the direct- I'd put in the running time so you know if the local TV station is chopping it up. I'd say whether it's in color or black and white. I rattled off all these things that I would do. He said, how'd you like to do it? I said, what do you mean? He said, I've been looking for somebody to do a rival book. I want to do a competitive book to that. Uh, You want to do it? I said, uh, yeah, Yeah. I guess. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. He hired me at age 17 to take on this massive assignment of doing a book of capsule movie reviews. And, and he said, I'm going to give now, you know, we're going to give you a lot of money. He said, try to have some of it left over when you're done because you're going to have to hire people and it's going to cost you money. Be careful. And it was good advice. And, uh, I ended up with some, <laughs> yeah. and, uh, the first thing I bought was an IBM, a used reconditioned IBM Selectric typewriter with the that ball. Was, yeah. Right. Yeah. And, uh, and so this book came out when I was 18 years old. The first, first one. Time. Yep. And what was it called? It was then called terrible title TV movies. Yeah. Because the other book had taken the only title for it, which was movies on TV. Right. Because at that time, there was no home video. There was no premium cable. There was none of that stuff. But
0: they were running movies during the day. Every local station, all day
1: long, all night long. You remember the late show, the late, late show, the late, late, late show. Yeah. So there were lots of people who stayed home and just watched movies all the time on TV. You didn't have to go to Turner Classic Movies to see old movies. Old movies were everywhere. They were the only movies. That's right. You turn the dial, and that's all you saw. Mm -hmm. There were no infomercials in the middle of the night. There were old movies. It was programming. Yeah. Not advertising, but programming. And so you didn't have to be an expert or an old movie buff to know who W.C. Fields was. Right. Because you just knew him. He was part of the landscape. Yeah. So I got to do this book and I hired people to help me because it took a lot of work. And it came out. And when it came out, all I saw were its flaws, uh, imperfections, shortcomings. Sure. Uh, But it did okay. Yeah. And five years later, they called and said, maybe it's time to update it. Okay, yeah. so I did a second one. then four years later, they called, said, maybe it's time to update it again. Okay, and then, then we did it on every other year. And then eventually, in the 80s, when home video came along, they said, I think we need to do this every year. And so I've been doing it every year for 30 years. And that's the, the Leonard Malton movie guide. Yeah.
0: yeah. But but outside of that, I mean, you know, that they, to me, this is a, an important resource. And, you know, it, it's limited to the length of these
1: reviews. Yes, of course. Uh, but- I always thought somebody would do, like, the real book, a real encyclopedia book. This was just a fingertip guy. Well, I used to have, what was it, Ephraim Katz? Oh, sure. Ephraim Katz was, was, was a good in film. Standard source. Everybody used him.
0: What's that other one? That one there, the-, um, uh, the British-
1: Oh, David Thompson's Biographical Dictionary of that's, Film. That's difficult. Yeah, another. but another widely admired resource. And it, But he's more along the critic- Yes, and he's he's writing critical essays, and he's and and very opinionated and unabashedly opinionated. Yes, you know, in assessing people's careers, and you don't do that. Well, everything we do, we're we're like the Twitter of film reviews. You know, these very (laughs) capsule form. But it seems to me that that your love of the business
0: remains intact. Yes, it does, and that uh, you, you know that you know what you're you're bringing to the world is not you know to to sort of you know take it down a notch. Or
1: to assess it in a way that would challenge it. No, I'm not gunning for anybody (laughs) or anything uh, in particular, (laughs) except stupidity. I hate stupid movies, and I hate insulting movies, and I hate movies that are just ripping off other movies instead of doing something fresh and original. But when I see something like Wes Anderson's The Grand Budapest Hotel, I say, you know that 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 gives me happiness and joy. And I don't get that feeling often enough. Well, I think that's wondering. what
0: he's in the business of doing. He's a—he's uh, so meticulous. He's, everything looks. Well, sometimes,
1: like sometimes his meticulousness turns me off. I, I was not a fan of Moonrise Kingdom, for instance. Right, uh, a little too precious for my taste. But, but it, like, just in a in a in a mise en scène uh,
0: way, the way he loads up a frame is pretty stunning. It's, it's yes, almost—it's—it's it's almost like he's a
1: jewelry maker. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Right. <laughs> you know. Yeah, but, uh, but you you wish he'd work on the on the, the story. Uh, on the story a little more than the <laughs> yeah. than the, the intricate movements inside the the mechanism
0: but like in in the larger books you did i mean you, you, and i haven't read a lot of them but i uh, you know i'm looking at the titles that uh you did,
1: what was movie comedy teams that was my first real book uh, that wasn't just a, a collection of these mini reviews they i had my foot in the door now at signet books at new american library and they said what do you want to do next so I submitted three ideas, two yeah. I thought were commercial, and one I thought was just something I wanted to do that wasn't commercial, and that's the one they bought, mm-hmm. which is a book about comedy teams. And uh, at that time, and it was about all the teams, yeah. starting with Laurel and Hardy and coming up to the, the Stooges, and Costello, obscure ones like Wheeler and Woolsey from the 30s, Clark and McCullough, who had been a big stage act, who made some movies, uh, the, the Three Stooges, of course, yeah. The Ritz Brothers, yeah. all of these acts. and. I just had the best time writing this book, screening these movies, doing the research. No one had ever compiled a list of everybody's films. Yeah. You couldn't look up all the Three Stooges movies. You couldn't do it. Yeah. No one else had printed that. I did. Uh Uh-huh. Now no one cares because you turn out, you know, you you (laughs) You open your iPhone and you you got it. Yeah. But at that time, it was an achievement. And the phenomenon of that book was that it was published, again, before the maul, the mauling of America. Uh Uh-huh. And before the chain bookstores came along. Mm-hmm. And in those days, books, paperbacks were sold in most cities in the drugstore and the Woolworths. That's where books were bought and sold. Mm-hmm. Except in big cities where yeah. there were stores. So this book came out. It cost a dollar and a half to buy. And it was in spinner racks in drugstores and in Woolworths and places like that. And I have had more people to this day come up to me and say, that's the first movie book I ever bought. Wow because yeah, it was mostly guys. Yeah. Guys like Evan Costello, yeah. you know, whatever, in sure. those days, you know. Sure, in, in those days.
0: The first movie book, though. But th- at that time, you were, you know, you were also functioning as a as a, an important archivist.
1: Well, yeah, well, the, the field was, uh, I kind of had the field to myself in a, in a way. I wasn't the only one but, doing But it this, seems but. to me
0: that you sensed a threat that if you didn't put this information out in the world that it would be <laughs> lost
1: forever. Well, I don't know if I'd go that far.
0: But no, but yeah. I, I mean, to, to say that, like, no one had ever...
1: You know, written down the full list of but movies. that was But that was the excited, That was the excitement of it. Yeah, that was what was so so invigorating about it. it what is, did you learn about comedy teams? I mean, what do they all share? Well, the the ones that <laughs> a lot of the ones that didn't socialize off screen lasted longer. Oh, really? Yes. Who were, who were they? Well, Laurel and Hardy led separate lives. Uh huh. They, they liked each other fine, but they led separate lives. They were entirely different men, who respected each other completely as performers and that's why they work together so harmoniously mm-hmm. and oliver hardy uh was a consummate comedian uh was for him it was a job when the job was over he wanted to play golf yeah that's what he cared about yeah he liked to eat obviously yeah. and he liked to play golf yeah and stan laurel lived and breathed comedy uh-huh. when he wasn't marrying a lot of women which uh-huh. he did also <laughs> but uh so th- that was one thing Abin costello uh were wildly popular when they came on the scene. When they came to movies in the early '40s, yeah, and they were sort of a- emblematic of what America was looking for during World War II. They wanted brash comedy. and yeah. they, they were brash. Yeah, and uh, and funny. I mean, their routines are still funny. Yeah, Who's on First is a funny, funny routine. Well, and the, the variations well, they did are Costello was hilarious. Lou Costello was a great, gifted comedian. He really was. <laughs> but but they never really developed anything more than just surface characters, and so when their vogue passed and they kind of lost their uh, their, their initial momentum, it was hard for them to sustain the careers, the, except by revisiting their old routines, which they did on their TV show. I got kind of that obsessed well. with,
0: the, uh, with the Niagara Falls
1: routine, <laughs> which, which which I didn't realize had been done by many people. Which was out of burlesque. Yeah. A lot of their best routines were right out of burlesque, and, and that's where they started. And there was no crime in that at that time. Oh, no, to burlesque it, was a form of entertainment. But, yeah. but you know, the, the idea that, you know, if you could
0: bring yourself to a bit that, that, that was uh, a standard. Yes. That it was almost like songs. So that's a yeah. standard. Yeah. Uh, you know, how are they going to do it? Right. Like I watched, I watched the Three Stooges do it, and I watched uh, mm-hmm. uh and Costello do it. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 and I guess a lot of people had done it live. Yeah. And it, that, that's sort of fascinating to me that,
1: that there was no, like, no one made a question of like, well, who, who wrote the material? It's like, well, how do we make it our own? Right. Yeah. Then there was a team called Olson and Johnson who uh-huh. were very big on stage and made a handful of movies in the forties. Uh-huh. They were often accused of stealing people's material. Uh-huh. The way Milton Berle was sometimes, you know, they used to call Milton the thief of bad gags, uh-huh. you know, and, uh-huh. and, uh, and, and he would make jokes about it. Uh-huh. Because he so, did, right? He, well, uh, well, uh, I don't know. Apparently, I don't know. Yeah. Steve Allen used to say about Milton that in a cutting contest, no one could beat him because while somebody was trying to think of something funny to say, Milton would remember five other things that he'd already said <laughs> that were funny. <laughs> right. And just spill them out. Yeah. Did you ever meet him? Oh, many times. Yeah. Fascinating he led, guy. He, li- he lived a long time. Why yes, was he, he Fascinating. Did. Because he was a walking history of show business, and he had a steel trap mind. My uncle had written a song with him in Uh the 30s. Mm -hmm. And uh, one time, my dad was out visiting, and I used to do pledge breaks at KCET, our public radio uh, uh, station. And it was fun to do, because you never knew who else would be on that night. And one night, they told me Milton was going to be there. So I brought my dad along, and my father said, you won't remember this, but many, many years ago, my brother Bernard... uh, Wrote a song with you. He said, "Bernie." Yeah, hadn't yeah, yeah. <laughs> heard the name in fifty years. Immediately yeah. he says, "Bernie." Yeah, uh, he was he was amazing. Uh-huh. He was amazing and funny too. Always funny. Yeah, always always funny. Uh huh.
0: And what what compelled you to write an entire book on the uh, on the little rascals?
1: Oh well, I grew up as I say watching them every single day of Channel my life. Eleven on Channel Eleven yeah. with Officer Joe Bolton, Uh-huh. and uh, th- you couldn't read a word about them anywhere. Huh. Go to the library, try to find a book. This is again, long before the internet. Yeah, couldn't find anything about them. I said, "Well, I got to write about that,"
0: and, and I did. Find- and
1: I wrote a book called uh, "The Great Movie Shorts," and I did a chapter in that book about the Rascals and printed the first filmography mm-hmm. of uh, all of their films, as I did for a bunch of other people then. And uh, then I met a guy who knew more about them than I did. And I said we should pool our resources and do a book together, and we did. And it's been in print for thirty-five years because people are still interested in them. What, what, it got it didn't end well for a lot of them. No, but the, that's that's a kind of a tabloid headline. Uh, that you didn't focus on that. Well, it's not just I didn't focus on it. it's not entirely true. Uh, for everyone you can tell me that ended badly, like Alfalfa, you know who who had a miserable home life, and uh, you know as, as usual it's. If you don't have parents who who are who have their feet on the ground and who treat you like a normal kid, uh, you're, you're going to have a hard time. Yeah, and that that was his story, mm-hmm. and and he wound up being shot of, uh, in a bar. You mm-hmm. know, that's a sad story. Right. But uh, but buckwheat had a had a good life. Mm-hmm. Spanky had some rough times and then a very good life, a good marriage, wonderful daughter who I met. Uh, you know, they're, 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 wasn't Robert Blake one of them? He was. Yeah. He was in the later years. And Jackie Cooper, too? Jackie Cooper, yeah. Dickie, Dickie Moore, who who had a good career as a child actor, and Scotty Beckett, who had a good career as a child actor. And you just loved them. Uh, couldn't get enough. Yeah. Loved them. And when my daughter was young and I started showing them to her, she uh-huh. loved them, too. Uh-huh. They're irresistible. So outside of the guides
0: and outside of the encapsulations and the, the shorter reviews, it's just interesting to me that, you know, you did movie, you, movie teams, comedy teams. You did... Uh, you did the Our
1: Gang thing. You wrote. You also did a book on Carol Lombard. Yeah, that was part of a series. There was a paperback series, and uh, uh, they were sort of slim books that were uh, uh, fairly perfunctory bio uh, biofilm career books. Uh, not so very. It was a
0: series that was written by several different
1: people. Oh, they, they, they printed about 50 different uh, oh, titles so you in this were series. Oh, I, I just kind of hired I just, yeah, it was Oh, not. okay. So it wasn't a passion I need, piece. I, I needed the money. Okay. But I love Carol Lombard. Yeah. And I had a good time watching all of her films in order to write write this book. But then I wrote a history of animated cartoons. And again, no one had done it before. Uh-huh. And so that was the part of the joy of it was not only getting to do the research. I met, I mean, I talked to Walter Lance. Uh-huh. Walter Lance started an animation in the teens. Uh-huh. In the teens, he, he he's, he's part of the creation of animated cartoons. I talked to so many guys who worked in the silent film era. I talked to people who were worked alongside Walt Disney in his earliest, earliest days. And what'd you learn from them about Walt Disney? Uh, well, Friz Freeling, who worked with him, who later became one of the mainstays of the Warner Brothers cartoon yeah. department, uh, had no uh, sentimentality about Walt at all. Not at all in the early days, he said, because uh, they all quit him at one point. very very early on why Uh, because they were hired they were were hired away by a by a producer by a somewhat conniving producer Uh uh-huh and they they said they had no they they had no personal attachment or affection Uh uh-huh uh but walt walt was a very ambitious guy yeah he and his brother were trying to succeed and then they they weren't getting rich on other people at that point they really weren't they were putting all the money back into the production right But uh, they needed everybody to work like crazy. And some of them said, you know, well, this isn't what we want to do. People who build empires aren't generally uh, boring. No. And and he came from nothing. He came from, you know, uh, I mean, genteel poverty, you might say. You know, he was not dirt poor. But, he, you know, it was a hard scrabble life that he had as a kid. Well,
0: so now, like, looking back on, so you don't consider yourself a film critic, you consider yourself a film reviewer film, film historian who makes a living as a film critic and a film critic but not not in the sense like is there a difference
1: between a film reviewer and a film critic well to me a critic is somebody who can write a somewhat lengthy thoughtful provocative essay about a film uh, you still read those in magazines like The New Yorker and I the mean, times a, and you know and and The times publishes good writing about film uh-huh and Both times, New mm-hmm. York and L.A., they both have good writers.
0: And a critic you, you, uses, you know, uh, intellectual resources to to bring. To I think so, write. and a whole, and
1: tries to hold films to a standard, mm-hmm. you know, and an, an what is uh, an accepted standard of of uh, quality, mm-hmm. and uh, takes the uh, takes the reader to task sometimes mm-hmm. if 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 they're falling down and supporting, you know, sloppy, crummy movies.
0: Right. So that's what you do.
1: Well, I do it. I do it on a once over lightly basis. I'm not. I'm not a deep thinker. I'm the last person to claim that.
0: Uh-huh.
1: Uh, I'm a middle brow critic. I would yeah. say. Yeah. But I. But I have my. You know. I have my opinions, and they're formed from a lot of experience. And I try to write from the heart, and I post my reviews on my website every Friday, and hope somebody reads them and gets something out of them.
0: Well, I mean, you sort of created uh, this sort of you and and Cisco and Ebert mm-hmm. uh, seem to create that 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 particular area of television you know the, well, the the encapsulated uh review
1: right well the problem with that is when i got hired by entertainment tonight they said we want you to do a scale of one to ten you know rate every film i said oh i hate it i hated doing that in my book too and w- when i started doing the the movie guide my editor said you got to do a star rating system like four stars for, and you got flack for that no never got flack for that uh people would argue with the ratings sure but that's what my editor said they would do. He said, people like that kind of shorthand. They well, that's respond and to and that. Cisco and Ebert had the thumbs up, thumbs exactly down. Exactly so. And so on AT, I used to rate films one to 10. And I never enjoyed doing it. But people would stop me on the street and say, you know, I can tell from your review whether you're going to give it a six or a seven or an eight. And I thought, well, I guess that's a good thing. Sure. It means they're paying attention. <laughs> yeah. It means I'm communicating clearly. Yeah. So I guess that's good. Were you friends with Ebert? Uh, I was friendly with him. I yeah. was never close. Uh, you know, we lived in different cities. Were you competitors? Did you ever have conversations? We had conversations. Yeah. As I did uh, more briefly with Gene, I didn't get to know uh, Gene as well as I got to know Roger, especially in later years. Uh-huh. Uh huh. The, the, the problem is that so many people who knew Roger and Gene only knew them from the TV show. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as some people only knew me from Entertainment Tonight. But now, with the internet, where you have the opportunity to go back and read Rogers reviews, and he's posted his whole inventory online, you see what a wonderful writer he was. Yeah, just a terrific writer with a highly individual voice, yeah, who managed to personalize film reviewing. Uh, he He has all the attributes of a great critic, but but on top of that, he integrates his life, his point of view, his experiences. Mm-hmm. It's a very tough thing to do. Mm-hmm. But uh, you, you know who's writing that review. Yeah. You know who that guy is. Oh, he
0: definitely had a, a point of view. Yeah. Yeah. And, and in terms of, uh, y- you know, where do you think, you know, what what is the difference then? Because it seems like a lot of people take jobs Uh, You know, on television and on the internet just to sort of, you know, there's a a hackneyed quality to a a, a kind of encapsulation of a film. There's a very big difference between someone who sits there and just goes, this happened, this happened, uh, I thought this was good. And somebody who draws from from what you're calling experience and stuff. It's very hard to sort out, but it it seems like there's a lot of almost uh, meaningless voices out there about film.
1: Well, you said that. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, and and I won't I won't strongly disagree. There used to be more meaningless voices, but there are fewer uh, fewer people who are putting critics on the air now. Uh-huh. Very few, in fact. Why and, is that? Uh, because people Because we're in the age of YouTube. Everybody's a critic. Everybody's a critic. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, when people talk about Rotten Tomatoes, Rotten Tomatoes is a fun idea that works. But I tell, tell That's people- That's crowdsourced, right? Uh, uh, well, no, half crowdsourced and half critic sourced. Yeah, because I don't go to any of them. I just listen to people I respect. But, but the point is, like, every, tom- every tomato represents a critic. Uh-huh. If, you, if you fire all the critics, there won't be any tomatoes left. Uh-huh. Uh, Rotten Tomatoes is an aggregate. Uh-huh. It's an aggregate of critical reviews. Okay. But, there, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's like saying you're in the buggy whip business. It's, it doesn't have a, a bright future right now. Because everybody is content to spout their own opinions. Were you ever approached by studios to, to carry water? No. And <laughs> amazingly, when I came out here uh, to work for ET, uh, within a year, we moved onto the Paramount Pictures lot. I was a movie critic at a movie studio. I worked in the middle of a movie studio. Uh-huh. And no one ever tried to bribe me or persuade me or strong arm me. Uh-huh. Never, ever. I mean, they could buy me a Coke, wouldn't yeah. kill him, you know, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, uh, no, I never, I never had any, any issues with that, which I'm very happy about. I, okay. So I, I, I want to talk about the, when I read a lot of that, that sort of high
0: minded intellectual criticism when i was in college i really didn't know you know who who it was really for Mm -hmm. like it seemed to be an academic exercise for people who were who were who were i I don't even i imagine it might have inspired some artists and it might have you know gave people a richer or deeper understanding of film but it was still it was still speculative and it was still sort of invented and and it seemed to be an academic uh uh pursuit but you know what what we
1: were just talking about in terms of you know, what is criticism for? I know, well, for some people, it's a, just a consumer guide. Okay. Should I go? Should I not go? Right. That's all people want, a lot of people want, from so-called film criticism, which is not really criticism. Right. It's, just, it's, it's a superficial review, and, th- and that's fine. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with that. It's right. valid. Yeah. As far as it goes. Yeah. But I don't want to say to somebody, don't go to see this movie. Yeah. I'd rather say, look, here's what the movie is, here's what I thought of it, if you... If you like Johnny Depp, if you find him interesting as an actor, you should go and see this movie. Right? Don't let me stop you from seeing this movie. Right? That's not
0: my job. Right. Well, that I mean, and I, I think that's fair. Yeah. And I think
1: it, it, at least you say like, eh, but you know, if you, you know, that's a, you, make your own choice. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. But ma- make make it, make an informed choice. Sure. Make a smart choice, but make a choice on your own. Yeah. And it, and it does become a financial choice at this point. in time. Unfortunately, yes. <laughs> you know.
0: The other thing that I've always, uh, now I'm, and I'm going to ask you as a historian, because I have this idea in my head that not unlike the, the archetypes of commedia Della Arte, that, that film has certain roles to fill that have been there since the beginning of film. Is do you see that as possible that there's a certain type of movie star that that fills the James Dean hole, that fills the Cary Grant hole, that <laughs> fill that there are these you know these these types of leading men, these types of character actors, these types of leading women that sort of repeat themselves throughout the history of film.
1: Yeah, I think that's true to a very real degree. I mean, we w- the world seems to always want an action star. Uh huh. You know, and, sure. and, and uh, Stallone and Schwarzenegger are still trying to do it. Right. Because people will still pay money to see them. But, but where does that go back to? Douglas Fairbanks? Yeah. It does, right? Sure. And then when- he you- He really was the first action star. And he did most of his own stunts to boot and then when you go back to you know the clown you know you have a, a wide
0: array of different types of clowns different that sort types of, fit of that humor role. exactly and then when you have like you know the the sex pot you go back to Rudy Valentino or or some right. sort of version of that right or, uh, that sex pot is used for women but you know well, the, but the Cla- sexy Clara
1: bow is a very sexy woman well yeah, place, and, yeah and and
0: then there's also the you know the the, the women with sort of uh, brass and 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 yep. different but it just seems to me that that they're they're always sort of moving around a very familiar configuration
1: that's that's existed throughout the history of cinema right just as people primarily still go to the movies for escape hmm it's always been the case it's still the case and of course the the, the problem that Hollywood's having now is that Fewer and fewer people seem to be going to the movies for something other than escape. Uh And it's hard to sell them a serious movie or a serious-minded movie, which is why so many people are being, so many writers and directors and performers are being drawn to cable TV where they can do some serious work. Wow, there's some great stuff going on. Exactly. And, and, And they're stealing movies' thunder because movies have allowed them to steal their thunder. What, and what, you have to turn to the indie films and the foreign language films and even the documentaries to get stimulating entertainment in, in a theater. Provocative, yeah,
0: yeah. Now, in each era, because you know, I'm curious about how this evolves. And with somebody like yourself, you know, who's had this passion of movies for movies going back to the beginning of movies, and, and, and you dedicated, you know, the first part of your life towards you know keeping the spirit of those movies alive. You know, w- what are the movies from each era for you? that that never that never stopped giving
1: oh gosh well my all-time favorite movie is casablanca
0: why which
1: which never it's the it's a perfect hollywood movie okay perfect Uh uh-huh uh great storytelling that embraces suspense topicality romance Mm -hmm. humor uh and uh, and drama. I mean, all the ingredients in this one film seamlessly woven together. And politics, to a certain degree, uh, very much politics, and and as and a point of view. Global politics. It yeah. has a point of view, uh-huh. and uh, and made by a master craftsman, Michael Curtiz, from a great screenplay, uh, and every part in that film is perfectly cast. Not just the the lead actors, who we know are great. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the supporting actors like Sidney Greenstreet and Peter Laurie, who we know are great. Yeah. But every face, every person who has just a line, a bit in that film, is a colorful face, yeah. an interesting face. Rick, help me, Rick. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you have to roll the arm or Rick. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, just, you know, it's, it's a wonderful film and I never do tire of it. Mm-hmm. I always see something I didn't notice before.
0: Okay, so let's go up twenty years. Like, like let's let's take it to the. Well, I mean,
1: are- again, again, when you when you get to that, what they now call the silver age, you know, the late '60s into the early '70s. I mean, I remember seeing Bonnie and Clyde when it was new.
0: Uh-huh.
1: Uh huh. Just you know, knock knocked you off your feet. Why? Because you, like you it's off so weird because you'd never seen the the romance and the violence and yes. the antihero. Yes. All in one thing. All in one thing, and told with such dynamism. Uh huh. I mean, you know, it was it was a really it was a, I think it's not unfair to say a revolutionary movie. Sure. And the same year, The Graduate. Uh huh. You great. know, yeah. revolutionary. Yeah. Revolutionary American film. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And so those films had a deep impact on me. Uh, and then you know, and then you move into the seventies where we're talking about Altman and Coppola and Lucas and uh, Michael Ritchie and uh Hal so Ashby. many Hal Ashby. Uh The, the Landlord. Last, the, the Landlord's a film I'm crazy about. I don't know that one. Oh, that was Hal Ashby's first film as a director. Oh, I gotta cause I love uh, The Last Detail. Well, that's a great film. Wow. I mean there's so many great films of that period. And again, I was lucky I got to hear some of them speak in person, you know, when they were, you know, out promoting their films. I got to interview some of them. Uh you and, a peck and guy? Uh yeah, I am a peck and guy. Uh, I'm not a peck and I'm not a rabid. Peck and pop fan
0: there's about five but, there that you know that but were... you
1: know you look at the wild bunch wow it's like uh, wow is right yeah. you know and i love westerns I, i'm a, i john ford is just about my favorite director sure. and you and and uh but i love the wild bunch the wild bunch
0: it. is great and uh and uh you know straw dogs and uh yeah, and the getaway is yeah, pretty potent and bring me the head of alfredo garcia is one of the most mm-hmm. there's a weirdest fucking movie mm-hmm. it, what a bizarre movie that is <laughs> he's, he's talking to that head yeah, you know,
1: <laughs> in the car. Yeah, well, he was a wild guy.
0: Yeah, um, Woody Allen,
1: love Woody Allen. Crimes and Misdemeanors, I think, is one of the greatest movies ever. Well, you know, I, I again, I have to explain to people that I remember Woody Allen as a stand-up comic you saw him That's when I not in person unfortunately mm-hmm. but I saw him he did a lot of TV work a mm-hmm. lot of TV appearances guest shots he was on What's My Line as a panelist you know he sure. did all sorts of television well that was I thought that that documentary about him was very revealing yeah and it was I just, done by a friend of mine
0: Bob White. but just in terms of just how calculating he is how ambitious he is how much of his shit he has together and that how
1: contrary to the in a lot of ways to the character yeah. of Woody Allen he is and by the way you know John Turturro's film Fading Gigolo uh-huh. with a part tailor-made for Woody Allen, which he helped shape with Turturro, and he gives the most sublime comedy performance in it. Fading Gigolo is a really good movie, and Turturro's great in it, too. He wrote it for himself and then tailored this part for Woody Allen. And in Woody fact, did it. Uh, Woody did it, and and the great story behind it. How? They have the same barber, Totoro said to his barber, would you be willing to mention to Woody Allen that I'm thinking of putting him in a movie? Would he be interested? And he did. Oh, that's hilarious. And that's how they got together. That's more a Hollywood story than a New York story, but it happened in New York. Uh Uh-huh. And uh, it's a... uh, uh, He's so good in it. Uh Uh-huh. He's just so good. And I've always loved him as a comedic performer. So even though uh, a couple of his most recent films where he's been on camera... The films maybe haven't been great. I just love him spouting one-liners. He still got it. Sure, he still got it, hundred yeah. percent. Yeah. And what he like the new batch
0: of directors? And did you what did you think of Spike Jones's movie? The uh, the I was not crazy about her.
1: Yeah. I like a lot of Spike Jones work. Adaptation, I think, is a brilliant. He's movie. got a hell of a feel for a camera, man. Yes, he does. It's like, yes, it's like, he does.
0: Like, I've never seen anything like that. And
1: I, you know, even Where the Wild Things Are. Not that a, car accident I, adaptation. Oh, I'll never forget that scene as long I, as I live. I don't know how the hell I think it. about that scene a little too often. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm backing out of a Where driveway. the Wild Things Are, that was, a, I think people miss, I mean, that's really an art film. It is an art film. Yeah. And not, again, a flawed movie, right. but with some wonderful, beautiful, heartfelt stuff in it. David O. Russell. Uh, uh, I like a lot of his stuff too he's another one like where the hell didn't like the new one so much oh which one Uh, American Hustle I, I, didn't, was, I didn't either. I, I thought it was a little flat. I wasn't sure what he was trying was to a do. A lot of it was like seeing a, a band with a lot of great soloists. What well, seemed to me what, the, unsu- you know. what he was
0: trying to do was create one of the. There was a period in the seventies where they did comedies that you know were were uh, uh, like gritty. Like you know, if you look at movies like Freebie and the Bean or, or, or stuff like that, where you know people were actually getting killed in yeah, comedies. Yeah, yeah, That it seemed like that was sort of the tone he was playing with, but yeah. there didn't seem to be anything really at no. stake. Silver Linings Playbook, genius
1: wonderful and and the fighter too and the fighter too that yes. he's got that he absolutely he, the, but the, i like i like his early work i like spanking the monkey great three uh, kings is a masterpiece three kings you know really good stuff unbelievable paul thomas anderson uh, uh, uh at times uh, uh mind-blowingly brilliant mhm yeah absolutely i mean you know boogie nights one of the great american films i think uh-huh. right up there with pulp fiction you Yeah, know I mean, Tarantino. Just, you know uh, a great great film uh uh-huh. and and uh I didn't love everything about The Master but boy I couldn't take my eyes off the screen. Right? You know? Yeah. And so I mean again even even if a film may not be you know 100% perfect if it holds me and grabs me and shows me things I haven't seen before. Yeah. Yeah, I'm there. I'm Something with
0: it. some films demand you to reckon with them even if you don't get it. Yeah like the Cohen brothers i mean like those guys you know seem to be doing their own thing and i and i think that the, obviously and they're, they're they are hit and miss as well but yeah i've not seen a, a more consistent cinematic vision in, in in a long time
1: no no absolutely yeah. and yet and yet what was funny is i liked everything about and davis except the movie yeah i mean i love i love the look of the movie the feel of the movie the casting of the movie uh-huh uh, the The performances in the movie, Oscar Isaac was just uh, extraordinary, uh-huh. and and they 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 love faces, you know. They cast their their bit parts. So, uh, not since Fellini, I think, yeah, somebody somebody who's got that, sure. that that kind of fondness for oddball faces, uh-huh. uh, and they put them all in just the right parts. Uh, but the film just didn't do it for me. Uh-huh. I, I admired it, you yeah. know.
0: I can admire it without liking it. I felt a little flat. I couldn't tell if it was intense or not because some of their movies require a few viewings. Yeah, and it seemed to me that it was sort of like a a very sort of brief uh, kind of picturesque journey through you know the changing of 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 music. Yeah, that like there there seemed to be the the, the John Goodman character like when yeah. when the, the when the Coens are so sparse. And you know when something feels flat and so, but yet so utterly intentional, you know I have to read into it. And yeah. it seemed to me that well, you that know, was, you,
1: you know that there's not a pore and a frame in their film that isn't that's right. intentional. Yeah. So
0: it just seemed to me that you know what was being driven there. You know, he was being driven across country by really the death of 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 Bebop and Beatnik, you yeah. know, America. Yeah. That, you, you know, I, I kept trying to read stuff into it. Yeah, yeah. It's and very I, perceptive of you. And, and, I, and I think that, you know, their movies require that. Yeah. Uh, what about, um, who was I just going to bring up? Uh, uh, oh, uh,
1: Alexander Payne. Love him. Yeah. He's Love got him. his own thing going too, huh? And he, he's a humanist. I mean, he's a satirist and a humanist. That's uh-huh. a rare combination. Uh-huh. That really is a rare combination. It's a tricky uh, business. And some people have criticized him for being too harsh on the people he supposedly celebrates Mm -hmm. that he he ridicules them he ridicules the very midwesterners he supposedly you know venerates Uh but that's what makes him so interesting and does citizen kane loom large with you yes it does it kind of has to or it does not because it has to because it does Uh because it does and when i was a kid i was too young i didn't uh, like those kids i lectured i didn't get it either it took me time you know you, 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 you can't absorb certain things when you're 12 years old or 14 sure. years and, old. And
0: I think it's also one of those movies that, that continues to reveal itself as you get older. And, and again
1: I, and again, that's true and, and you relate to your from your own life experience in different ways. And then that's you, a,
0: that's the real sign of a masterpiece is well, that sure. some, with is something that grows with you yeah exactly and, and as you revisit it you 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 seek deeper wisdom from precisely it. so mm-hmm. and
1: there are f- you know uh, too few films that do that did you see the Italian film The Great Beauty Mm-mm. which uh, uh, was the Oscar uh, winner this year uh, a, a really moving film that's kind of like a uh, a modern day update of uh, La Dolce Vita. Uh-huh. Uh, by Paolo Sorrentino a really moving film that works on several levels uh-huh. and, and hard to describe actually as a movie but uh, very beguiling. You liked it? Yeah, very much uh, very We could probably much. do this all day, huh? Yeah
0: <laughs> <laughs> Well, I tell you man, it was great talking to you. Same Leonard. here, uh, and same I, here And I think we covered a lot, do you? Well, I sure hope so <laughs> I You think think feel we good did. about it? Yes, I do And Thank you for bringing me the books You're and uh, And thank you for your insight, I appreciate it <laughs> See, that was interesting. I like Leonard Maltin. We had a nice chat, and he left me a bunch of books. I have an entire library of Leonard Maltin material right now. All right, well, that's our show, folks. Go to WTFPod.com for all your WTF Pod needs. Uh, the comment section is later. No more. I thought about it. I waited out. It wasn't a community. It was barely used. I'm going to take away the platform for the ten trolls and the five douchebags. And the seven people that enjoy the show. I'm sorry to you people. Yeah, it's gone. It's gone. You can still use the Facebook. The reason I left that is because you can't be anonymous on that, you pussies. You know who I'm talking to. But anyways, wait, what am I doing? Why am I using that tone? It's the end of the show. Let's do end of the show tone. Go to WTFPod.com, which I just said. Get the app if you're new to the show. Get the free app, Upgrade. You can stream all 512, 15, however many episodes. And, uh, get some merch. You can check my calendar, see where I'm going, get some just coffee. You can... Oh my god, I'm so tired of my ears popping. Oh my god. Can't I just let myself feel good? Can't I just let myself feel good? Is that what's happening? Is it? <sighs> Boomer lives!